Father, thank you for this amazing moment in your presence. I ask you, Lord, that you would release a prophecy over this house. God, that this would be more than a sermon, Lord. I didn't come to bring a sermon. I came to deliver a message. So I ask you, Lord, that this morning that you will let your message fall upon the ears of the hearers and let prophecy ring out across this room as you give us direction for the future. Show us, O God, what the next move of God looks like, that we may be ready, that we will embrace it and not let it pass by. For all of these things, we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Because I am the Bible teacher, I want to give you my scriptures ahead of time. I am going to be giving you more scriptures than this. But the three scriptures I want you to find in your Bible right now is Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to start there. Then I'm going to jump over to Amos 9 and 11. You can remember 9 11. Everyone can. I'm going to Amos 9 11 for just a minute. And then I'm going to end up at the end at Joel 2, which is a very, fa- a very familiar passage of Scripture. So I want you to go to those three places. And then I'll, I will intersparse a few more things in between. <clears throat> Are you ready for the next move of God. I know we want to be ready, but are you ready? Do you know what that looks like? What if the next move of God does not look like the last move of God? What if the next move of God does not look like the revivals that you have seen in the past? Are we ready to step up into what God is doing, or will we stand around the ash pot where the fire has been. Will we stand around when the, when the cloud moves and the fiery pillar moves? Will we move with the cloud or will we stand around where he has been saying, it's still warm, I'll just stay there and warm myself by the fire? Or will we follow the cloud? Will we follow the fire of God and do what God is doing? What do you think and what do I think the next move of God looks like? Well, the first thing that I want to say and declare, and this has been in in my spirit for so long, it seems like everywhere I go and preach, I have to talk about this in some context or another. I've been talking about this for about three or four years now. So if you've heard me speak anywhere, you've heard me mention this because I am heralding this everywhere I go. See, I believe that God is shaking the world right now, but not for the same reason that other people are thinking. I don't think evil is winning. That might put me in a minority, but I don't think evil is winning. I think God is in control. I think God is shaking the earth right now, and everything that can be shaken will be shaken because I think God is panning for gold. I don't think the world is out of control. I think the world is in God's hands right now. And it just looks out of control because God is shaking down and exposing what wickedness looks like so that the righteous can rise to what God has called us to be. So I believe the next move of God is going to be a revival that sweeps this earth. And I don't believe it's going to escape anyone's knowledge. Not everyone will embrace it. Not everyone will buy into it. Not everyone will get involved. But everyone will know about it. So I want to start in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. And I want to just talk quickly about this shaking that is going on. 
In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26, look at this. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more. Now, when God's voice shook the earth, he's talking about Mount Sinai. And by the way, on the day of Pentecost is when the Jewish people are celebrating the Mount Sinai incident and the giving of the Ten Commandments. That's what we call Pentecost. It's what they call the Feast of Weeks and the celebration of Sinai. So he's talking about in the, in the Old Testament, how God shook the mountain, but how he's going to do something in the New Testament through the Holy Spirit to shake the earth again, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, yet once more, shake, I shall shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Oh, I just got to stop there for a moment. We know what it looks like when the earth gets shaken. Do you know what it looks like when the heaven gets shaken? Do you know what it looks like when God shakes up the order of heaven? When God shakes up the assignment of angels? When God shakes up the mission of the Holy Spirit on the earth? You know what it looks like when the earth gets shaken. But God said, this time, I'm not just going to shake the heavens. I'm, also, I'm not going to shake the earth. This time, I'm also going to shake the heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things which are being shaken. What's going on in this crazy world? God's removing things. What's going on in this crazy world? God is separating things. Oh, there's a defining line now between Christianity and the rest of the world. We can't hide any longer. We can't blend any longer. There will be no room for secular church in the future. There'll be no room for experience church express in the future the line has been drawn in the sand and now we have to declare who is on the lord's side among us the line has been drawn god is separating those things so that those things that can be shaken will be shaken now listen to the rest of this verse yet once more indicates the removal of things that are being shaken as the things that are being that are made that the things which cannot be shaken. There we go back to prevailing again. That the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Well, what kinds of things is he talking about that cannot be shaken? Verse 28 tells us, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we serve God acceptably. God is letting the earth shake so the kingdom can rise. Because the kingdom cannot be shaken. I happen to believe that we are coming into our finest hour. I happen to believe that we're getting ready, Dr. Mark, to sprint across the finish line. I happen to believe that God has saved the very best for last. I happen to believe that this world is going to get uncomfortable, so we will be ready to leave this world. I happen to believe that revival is coming and then after revival, the rapture will take place. And after the rapture takes place, the kingdoms of this world will be in chaos during the seven years of tribulation.
tribulation and then Jesus Christ will come back and set up a millennial kingdom on the earth for a thousand years to rule. That's what I think is going on. I don't think the government's in chaos because they want to be in chaos. I don't think they have a choice. You know, I don't agree with the homosexual agenda, but I can tell you this, you're not going to stop it because as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. I don't agree with everybody getting offended, but you're not going to stop it because in Matthew 24, right after he says that there will be earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars, you know what the next sign is? And the end of days, everybody's going to get offended. You're not going to change any of this. You can fight it, but you're fighting the wrong battle. You can try to come against it, but you're coming against You are going to get distracted by this world's agenda because we don't live by this world's agenda. We have a kingdom agenda, and we have to be busy being the church. It's more important right now that we let God arise and his enemies be scattered than we try to take up our issues on Facebook. It is more important right now that we act like Christians than just trying to attack everybody who's attacking Christians. This is not our first enemy. It's not going to be our last enemy. And we don't believe in escapism. Oh, I'm a staunch pre-tribulation rapture guy, but not because I believe in, not because I believe in escapism. What are we escaping? We've had 70 million Christians die a martyr's death since the cross of Jesus Christ. We're not getting out of tribulation, but we are going to escape the wrath of God that is coming to judge this earth. He is not coming to judge the church. He is coming to judge the world. And I'm ready to have revival. Let God give his last altar call and get us out of here. I am ready to go be with the king. Hallelujah. So I'm of the persuasion that revival is coming. I'm of the persuasion that the Holy Spirit is about to sweep over this earth. I call it the final flight of the dove. Noah had a dove that flew three times, and it was a, it was a type and shadow of the moving of the Holy Spirit in the earth. The first dove flew around the, around the earth and came back to the ark because there was no place for him to land. That's how the Holy Spirit had to operate in the Old Testament. There was no place for him to land. So he came back. He would light and go, light and go, come upon them and leave. And then the dove flew the the second time. And when the dove flew the second time, he brought back an olive branch, which is the symbol of Israel. And on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, in Israel, the Holy Spirit found a place to land. That is when we were filled with the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost. But that's not the last flight of the dove. There is yet one more flight of the dove. And when that dove flew it did not come back and the door opened and a rainbow appeared because that last final flight of the dove is the one is the final move of God on this earth don't you believe for a second that the devil is more powerful than God no 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 don't you believe for a second that this world is more powerful than God God raises up kings and and, and dethrones kings God gives power and strength 
to armies. No, don't you think for one moment that God is up there as worried as you are about not get, not making it through COVID and not making it. No, God is not worried at all. God is saying, I've got you right where I want you. I'm bringing the church to its knees and then they're going to rise to power and the kingdoms of this earth, everything that can be shaken is going to be shaken. So how do we embrace this next move of God? If the next move of God is a movement of revival, a final flight of the dove, if the next move of God is to cause the kingdom to rise, what does it look like? So now we have to go to Amos 9-11 because we have to look at prophecies that have not been fulfilled yet and to see how these prophecies intertwine with the agenda of God on the earth right now. So in Amos 9 and 11, and you can remember that, 9-11, the book of Amos, on that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins to rebuild it as the days of old, that, and here's the key, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Now, when the house of Cornelius received the Holy Ghost, they, the Jerusalem council came together because they couldn't believe that the Holy Ghost had fallen upon Gentiles. They thought Jesus was Jewish and the whole message was Jewish. He was a Jewish Messiah and they did not know what to do when the Holy Ghost fell on the house of Cornelius at the, in, in the, uh, upon the Italians of their day. And when that happened, they had a council called the Jerusalem Council where the apostles got together to discuss it. And out of all the things they could have come up with, out of all the things they could have said they came to this conclusion and it's recorded in Acts chapter 15 after this I will return and I will rebuild the house of David this is this is their statement this is their this is their explanation for what just happened at the house of Cornelius they said this was the fulfillment or not the fulfillment but this was the enactment of this scripture in Amos he says and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down and I will rebuild its ruins and set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord even the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who does this thing so here is what has to happen we cannot elect the problems out of this country anymore it's deeper than that it doesn't matter who you vote for you cannot straighten up America with an election any longer you cannot straighten up America with a new law and a new bill. You're not going to straighten out America. How do we return the moral compass to this land? How do we return the ethnic compass to this land? How do we restore conservative ideas? How do we get liberal thinking out of the universities that are corrupting the next generation and giving them notions that God is not real and that the Bible is a a made-up history book, a crutch of psychology 
How do we disrupt this, all of this issues going on in our land? I want to tell you, you can't elect it. The answer for America is never going to be found in a donkey or an elephant. It's going to be found in a lamb. The answer to America is going to come when this nation returns to the foundation. There's only one hope, not only for America, there's only one hope for the world, and that is revival. There's only one thing that can save you. We need a revival from the White House to your house. We need, wouldn't you like to see a move of God where members of Congress are getting filled with the Holy Ghost? Wouldn't you like to see a move of God where members of the House of Representatives have just seen a manifestation of God's presence and they can no longer deny? Wouldn't you like to see a move of God where revival breaks out on a secular college campus? Oh, it's all happened before and it can happen again. It's happened. Do you realize in St. Louis, Missouri, when the, when the, at the, when the revival, the great awakening, the turn of revival was going on, that in St. Louis, Missouri, they shut down the banking system and all the corporate downtown St. Louis. There's a book called The Soul of St. Louis that records this whole scene. The entire city of St. Louis shut down for a man by the name of Finney to come and preach in St. Louis. They've shut down and people were coming to the Lord. Bars were being shut down. And the old Chicago shoe salesman, D.L. Moody, was bringing cities together. Oh, if God can do it then, if God can shut the bars down then, if God can save the gang members then, don't you forget that God can do it again. God can do it again. We don't need another election to straighten us out. We need a revival to come to this land and heal our land once again. Hallelujah. This program is brought to you by the partners of Brian Cutshaw and Church Trainer Ministries. Please help us pray that the Lord will continue to send us more partners so we can expand his kingdom around the world. Thank you so much for supporting our ministry. If this has blessed you, please say a prayer for us. And if you would like to give, we have four ways that you can do that. You can give online at briancutshaw.com, or if you're a PayPal user, just PayPal us at Church Trainer. Or you can also give through the mail at P.O. Box 267, Georgetown, Tennessee, 37336. Or if you're a Venmo user, you can Venmo us also at Church Trainer. Thank you, and God bless you, and may the Lord multiply your seed. Now back to Hope in the Word. But this is what I believe. I believe this with all of my heart. And I, I, you couldn't have set up this sermon any better than the prayer meeting this morning, Bishop. And you, you and I had not talked about what I was going to say. I had no idea what you were going to say. But I believe that the next revival is going to be about glory, not anointing. I, I believe that. You see, there is a difference in anointing and glory, and we think it's the same, but it is not the same. Anointing is when God uses us and our gifts to do his will. Glory is when God does it all by himself. 
See, anointing depends upon my availability and my, my ingenuity and my energy. Anointing depends upon my gifts and my talents. And anointing is when God sets somebody on fire. The symbol of that is the menorah in the temple. And you know what? In the menorah, and I don't have time to preach this, but I hope somebody goes home and preaches it. Because there's something that does not belong in the temple, but it's there anyway. On the outer court, you have, you have five stations leading into the throne of grace, which is the, which is the holy of holies. You have five stations. You have the brazen altar, which represents our salvation. Then you have the laver, which represents our sanctification. But then we move from bronze into gold. And when we go into the next section, we see three things. We have the table of shoe bread, which represents the word of God. We have the altar of incense, which represents prayer. But then we have something else in there. We have the menorah. And the menorah represents the light of the Holy Spirit, the fire of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. But the weird thing about it is the menorah so had to be crafted out of one piece of gold. It couldn't be, there could be no separation. It had to be unified like an almond tree. And they had, and then they would take all these pains to make this oil that no man's hands could touch. No man's hands could touch this precious oil. They would take this oil and fill up the menorah and then they said, but Lord, how do we light it? He said, oh, just use a filthy rag. You read it. That's exactly what he said. Just use a filthy rag. Take an old, twisted up, nasty rag, soak it in the oil and set it on fire. You know what? There's something that does not belong in that temple and that's a a filthy rag. And Jesus said, your righteousness is as filthy rags. But can I tell you something? When God takes up your twisted up dirty life and he soaks you in the oil of the Holy Spirit and sets you on fire, you begin to pull the oil up into you and the flame inside of you burns off the dross and burns out the impurities and God sets you aflame. That's what the anointing looks like. It's men and women who have been set on fire by the Holy Ghost. That's what happened in the upper room when tongues of fire set down upon them. It looks like people set on fire, but the anointing depends upon our gifts, but not the glory. The glory is when God comes down and does it all by himself and no one gets the credit. And the next revival is not going to look like, look like a high-powered evangelist or a televangelist. It's not going to be somebody's name or some churches getting the credit, the next move of God is going to come in such a way that no one can take the credit. There's going to be people getting saved before anybody preached a sermon. There's going to be somebody getting healed before the prayer line was even called. When God comes down and the glory of God settles in the house in a tangible form, all you got to do is walk into the presence. And just walking into the presence is going to heal you all by itself. You're not going to need the sermons you thought you were going to need. You're not going to need a song that you thought you were going to need. The presence of God all by himself is going to do what God needs to do in this land. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The net, can you imagine a service where you walked in and you had a sermon 
and you had amazing music picked out, but all of a sudden, before the service ever got started, can you imagine a glory cloud just showing up, and the singers couldn't sing, and the preacher couldn't preach? Can you imagine a tangible moment of his presence, and there was nothing you could sing at that moment? There is no music set worthy of that. There is no musician worthy of that. There's no, and you just fold the sermon up, and you just lay the instrument down, and you just stand and bask in the glory of his presence. That's what I think the next move of God. Can I tell you something? You let that happen, it'll change Washington. You let that happen, it'll change government. There'll be people, all you need is for a few senators' children to get saved, and it'll turn their household around. All you need is for a few presidents and and senators' grandchildren to get the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and they'll take it into the house and change the whole house. God has a plan. Oh, God's not worried at all. God has a plan. You see, the anointing drains us. Even when Jesus was operating on the anointing in Luke 8 and 46, and Jesus said, somebody just touched me, and I perceived it going out of me. When you operate under the anointing, it wears you out. Every preacher knows that. Every singer knows that. Every intercessor definitely knows that. Because when you operate under the anointing, you just have to go take a nap, or you have to go sit down somewhere. You're out of breath. I've preached camp meetings before, and I know some of you guys have. And at the end of the camp meeting, I remember doing six or seven camp meetings in a row. And at the end of it, I, I could feel the burn all throughout my body. I felt like every organ in my body was inflamed. I could tell you where my liver was and my lungs. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I felt like my whole body was just rent and I was burning so much on the inside that I I, I just was miserable all the time, but I couldn't wait for the next night. I couldn't wait for the next service. It was wearing me out. That's what the anointing does. But the glory is times of refreshing in the presence of the Lord. When the glory comes in the house, you can run through a troop and leap over a wall. When the glory comes in the house, you cannot wait. Revivals that are glory-centered, people want to go night after night after night, and they're refreshed. They're doomed without sleep, but they cannot wait to get back because the glory operates much, much different than the anointing. You see, when the glory of God came in the temple, the priest could not minister any longer. Now, you can break that down any way you want in the Hebrew, but it's always going to take you to the same conclusion. They could not stand to minister. It didn't mean they didn't want to minister. They didn't use that, that euphemism that we use, I can't stand that or stand that. That's not what it's talking about. It means they could not physically stand up when the glory came down. You know what that scene looked like? That scene looked like the singer's had sang, but no glory was in the house. And thank God the singers can bring the glory, but that's not what brought it. All of it, the musicians had played, but no glory in the house. Solomon had prayed and no glory in the house. And finally, all of them came together. And in one song, in one accord, they began to worship. And when they began to worship, the Bible says the glory of God came down in Solomon's temple and every priest fell down to the ground. Nobody could pray. Nobody could minister. You know, I may talk about this a little bit tomorrow, but do you, you know the reason 
for that is part of the reason for that is something that we have forgotten about worship. Worship does not depend upon intellect. It depends upon heart. Now, let me explain this to you. The most common word for worship in the Old Testament is the word saha. Saha. You have to actually gurgle it a little bit if you're saying in Hebrew, saha. So saha means to put your head below your heart. That when you watch Hebrew people, I may mention this again tomorrow, when you watch Jewish people worship, like when we were in Israel, Brother Kimbrell, when we were in, when you see them worship, they worship like this or they will get completely down on the ground and put their face to the ground the reason for that is because of this word saha which means your head has to be below your heart have you ever watched a rabbi pray he prays like this You know why? He says, my head has to be below my heart. If I think about worship too much, I won't do it right. If I contemplate it, if I just think this song goes with that song, or if I think that worship is just another form of entertainment for me. I like this song, but I don't like that song. I'm going to worship when my children are up there singing, but no other time. I'm going to worship when they sing a good old southern gospel tune, but I can't worship to this new stuff. That's not, none of that's worship. None of that is even worship. Worship is, I saw the Lord high and lift it up and his train fill the temple and I don't have to think about it. Worship is my head is below my heart. I don't care what they think about me. Can I tell you something? If you're a real worshiper, no education, no amount, no election, no amount of prominence should ever take that worship away from you. If you are a true worshiper and finally you get a degree and you don't think you can worship anymore because of how people are going to see you, then you never were a worshiper. If you're a worshiper and now you've got a big church and you're worried about what people are going to think because they think that's old-fashioned. Worship is old-fashioned. It's been around since the beginning of time. It's been around before Adam and Eve. It's been around in the present. Yes. Oh, yes. It's been around a while. And can I tell you something? Your worship is going to outlive your degree. Your worship is going to outlive your prominence. Your worship is going to outlive your successful season. When you truly worship, you put your head below your hard and all you can do is give him praise. You don't care what anybody says. You don't care what anybody thinks about you. You don't care what people are pointing at you. A real worshiper will worship God because he's worthy to be praised and no other reason. If you are if you are a restrained worshiper, it's because you have not put your head below your heart. And in the glory of the temple, when the glory fell, they had to put their head below their heart. When the glory falls, you won't have a sermon to preach. There'll be no need for it. That's not meaning we're going to do away with the word of God. No, but God is going to show up in the most unlikely places and do it all by himself. Hallelujah.